Pierce Parks Associates Smart Tech Check Podcast with Mark Nina. Hello, everyone. My name is Mark Vina, leader of the Parks Associates Smart Home Research Practice, and welcome to the Smart Tech Check Podcast, where we cover all consumer tech topics that are smart home, home automation, security, and console gaming related, and much, much more. Today is Tuesday, August 17th, 2021. Lots and lots, as we usually do, to chat about. Um, on our roster today, we unfortunately we're missing our, our uh, one of our favorite journalist, Ron Peguerero. He's, uh, I don't know where the heck he is, but I think he's actually out earning a living, which is really frustrating me that he actually made that decision to make a few bucks and ignore my podcast, but I'll forgive him. But we've got my uh, two other trusty journalists on. on. We've got uh, John Quain, who writes on technology for the New York Times and Tom's Guide, and Stuart Walpin, who writes for Twice and Techlicious. Gentlemen, welcome to the podcast. Thanks. Thanks, Mark. And but by the way, the Yankees are playing right now, and they are playing like they're up know, five to three. Yes, I you know they are just an exciting team. It's amazing what happens when you trip, when you sign three big guys by the by the uh, trading deadline. What can happen in baseball? It's an amazing story. You know, I, I can't cannot. I, I love the I love the Field of Dreams game. That was a that was just well, even though they didn't win the game, that was an astounding game. That could yeah. be a a podcast in itself because I know a lot of folks. Um, uh, and I won't name, I, I know one particularly prominent journalist or former journalist, who both of you know, who thought it was the cheesiest thing last year when I talked to him. They said, oh, the NL, why are they doing that? This is, you know, I really thought it was very tastefully executed. I love mm-hmm. that. I mean, the speech that um, James Earl Jones makes at the end is one of the great, great baseball. Always gives me chills. Yeah, it does. So, anyway, we'll do a podcast about that separately. I'll make a note about that, but let's tee up uh, today's uh, topics. And, uh, you know, what I want to do here is kind of tee up, um, you know, as I've done the last couple of uh, weeks, a really interesting Park Associates factoid of the week. That's what's great about working for this firm. There's just lots and lots of wonderful data that we can opine on. And uh, let me just start off with, with getting, Stuart, your reaction to this when you saw this. Did this surprise you in any way um, when, you, when you glanced at this before? 110 million. Our, our research include, um, indicates that 110 million U.S. Um, have over. Uh, there's a 110 million residential and small business internet subscriptions as of the first quarter of this year, which actually, really what, is a actually, number, what, what surprises me is not that number. That number doesn't surprise me. I think there are in the U.S. I think the last time I looked it was 120, either between 125 or 133 million households. Mm-hmm. Um, so that number does not surprise me. What surprises me is the 77% of U.S. households, which means perhaps I'm underestimating the number of households. I'm that that almost a quarter of American households don't have internet connection. That surprises me. Um, uh, and a lot of doing a lot when they were doing the digital transition. In uh, 2012, the estimate was that only 10% of TV viewers were still receiving their TV over the air. And TV is much less important these days. Um, And certainly cable, not as even you, especially since all cable companies offer uh, internet connectivity, that nearly 25% of American households don't have an internet connection, that stunned me. 
Well, a lot of folks, there's still a, lot of, uh, a reasonable portion of the population that live in very rural areas. They right. can't get 5G. You know, um, some of them, you know, play with mobile hotspots, but those are not those are not very reliable. And fixed wireless is very, very expensive. Right. Well, and it's, it's, yeah. Look where I'm sitting. I'm sitting in my car here in the country because there is no Internet access here. And pretty much. Uh, you know, some of the towns now have some wired up, but if you don't live in a little town in Vermont, there's nothing, no cellular service, no internet access. So I, 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 I'm surprised it's not higher than 20% too, but I think a lot of people use their smartphone though. Mm -hmm. So they do kind of have internet access when they're at work or they're grocery shopping or something else. But, uh, but I wasn't, wasn't totally surprised. Well, before we hit the next, uh, the first topic, you know, what's interesting about the hotspot issue is that now that I've been doing work with parks, I'm in Dallas all the time, and Dallas does actually have 5G coverage in a good portion of the area. And I'm in this wonderful Marriott Hotel, and as you know, the internet access is not exactly great in, in uh, many hotels. And I've been using my hotspot, and it's phenomenal. I mean, really, right. I mean, I, it, you can dramatically feel the difference. And what's really weird about this is that, you know, my main residence right now is in San Jose, you know, the, the birthplace of Silicon Valley. and and average yeah. up there, even in, you have to really go up to San Francisco, and it's even not that great in most parts of San Francisco. But uh, it really is amazing. And, and the only other thing I'll wrap around that data point is that 77% figure, uh, 71% figure, we had on the slide, is that um, that's um, broadband with a very generous definition. So you could have very, very, what you and I, the three of us, would consider very low speed. Right. Um, I think I think the federal definition of broadband is 25 megabits per second uh, download right. and three megabits per second upload, which is insanely stupid. Right. Right. In fact, I have we have several clients that I'm actually doing a white paper on. And I won't tell you who they are, but that's the thing that just drives them crazy because that, that you know from a requirement standpoint, I mean that's like a, I want to say that's probably a 2005. Right. There have been several consumer organizations that have been pushing the FCC to upgrade that definition, and they've been knocking. They were knocking their heads against the wall during the last administration. Whether or not they'll be able to make any headway with the current administration remains to be seen. But I want to amend something I said. Maybe surprise was the wrong word about that seventy-seven percent figure. Disappointed maybe a, a, a better way of looking at it. And I think that the the uh, the Recovery Act and what they're doing with infrastructure to expand broadband will hopefully act in a way that FDR's uh, rural electrification program worked that will cut that number down considerably, hoping. But I mean, but uh, uh, Mark, to your clients though too, what it also says is there's room for growth. A lot of growth. Oh, yeah. because yeah, if, you've got, exactly. if you've got that many people who aren't really online at home in any significant way, there's a lot of opportunity there. No, that's 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 exactly right. Because and again, back to that whole twenty-five-three issue, is that you know getting and we can we can debate all day long what's the minimum speed we all the three of us think um, is really compelling. But there's so many um, interesting services that you can take advantage of, not just streaming movies and playing games and some of the obvious stuff. 
But when you have really, really good internet service, it opens up a whole range of applications and possibilities that you can't get. And business opportunities for, you know, the Disney Pluses, Apple TVs, and HBO Maxes of the world. That's exactly right. Exactly. Yeah. Let us go to the first topic here. Absolutely. Um, this is really interesting um, because I have covers. I've been, you know, uh, Parks Associates is very, very much involved in the uh, Matter Initiative. It was kind of announced a couple of days ago that they're pushing that standard, at least the, they're not pushing maybe a, a bad word, but the um, certainly you're not going to see devices that support this brand new initiative, which is supposed to drive terrific baseline um, interoperability between Google Assistant, um, Amazon um, Alexa, and, um, and uh, Apple okay. Home. And, uh, you know, part of me is obviously a bit disappointed because, you know, as an as a analyst, I mean, Parks Associates feels very strongly that the industry needs this, you know, to, to, to get people on the bandwagon. And, you know, right now the smart home, it's not exactly niche, but, you know, if you look at the data that we have, and I, I won't, you know, go into tremendous depth on this, but a lot of the data that indicates is that it's still kind of a, um, a, 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 um, a, a, a high-end, not a high-end, but a, a sophisticated type of user who's outfitting their smart home. It hasn't become mainstream the way that we all like to think of that. And we believe that the standard is going to help that because, you know, when, when you go to a Best Buy and you buy a smart home device and and you don't know, what, the average person is not going to know, well, this doesn't, this works with Google Assistant, but it doesn't work with, with, with Amazon Alexa or more frequently it may not work with um, Apple HomeKit. Most users, they don't try to figure out a backup. They just go back to Best Buy or return it or, or send it back to Amazon. So any thoughts on this? Because we, I, we, I, we think it's a big deal. Obviously, they want to do this the right way. So, you know, you know kudos to the, uh, to the CSA for, um, you know, doing the right thing and not trying to rush this out the door. But I'd like to get, the, Stuart, your opinion on this in terms of what you're, when you first heard, heard of this. What was your reaction? I, I didn't have any reaction. I, I wasn't surprised. You see a lot of these standards activities being delayed for one reason or another. And they talked about COVID-19, which quite frankly, when you're doing these sorts of standards, you have to get people in the same room together. So that that didn't surprise me. The fact that they're trying to work that through, this is a Zigbee-based uh, operation. And so, and you've got a lot of players who normally don't play nice together. But from the consumer side, it's, disappointing is not the right word. I think so much of this relies, if and when it comes, on execution. I don't know when the last time either of you had gone shopping to like Lowe's or Home Depot or even a Best Buy, and you pick up a box that has a smart home or an IoT item in it. The number of initials and logos of different standards and compatibilities on the box is, I think, the primary reason most people pick up the box, look at it, and put it back on the shelf. It is, to me, as, and I sort of know what I'm looking at, the number of compatibilities that are listed on a box, I think, just scare consumers off immediately. And in terms of the execution of this, if they can get rid of all of those standards organizations that insist on having their logos on every smart bulb box, I think it would go a long way if it smart bulb matters, period. I don't want to see Google Assistant. I don't want to see Amazon Alexa. I don't want to see HomeKit. I don't want to see Zigbee. I don't want to see Z-Wave. I don't want to see, I don't want to see anything else except 
it will work. Something on the box that tells me it will work with what I have. And not this ridiculous collection of logos and acronyms. I, we call it NASCAR in the tech space. The NASCAR effect, where you've got logos all over the place. And, right. and, and it's interesting to point it out because, it, you know, Intel... Intel's got enough issues to deal with, so I don't I, I don't want to go after Intel. But you gotta recall that Intel kind of was kind of the the, the founding right. father, so to speak, of, right. of you know getting the brand to stop uh, stand out, Intel inside, which by the way they paid the PCOEMs to do. There was a financial motivation in doing that. And, and most you know marketeers point at the Intel inside logo as kind of the start of all this. But I agree with you is that too many lo logos creates too much confusion. Uh, and, I, and by I, the way, Matter is supposed to be the good housekeeping seal, the one and only good house, housekeeping seal. So, uh, John, I don't, I want to get your two cents on this. Oh, I mean, you know, this is kind of, it depends on how well it works. And, and having been on some standards committees where they sequester you in a hotel for a few days with a bunch of engineers and you all like argue about what should be in the standard, um, it, it, it does, that definitely takes a while. And this has got to be a bigger you know, it's not just the communication standards. So the sorts of things I've worked on are kind of narrow, video, audio, and data, and that's all you're dealing with. This is like everything you could ever think of, including literally the kitchen sink, right? Alexa works with the faucets and stuff. So, you know, it doesn't surprise me it's going to take longer, but I also think we have a standard. It's called Alexa. It's over. You know, as far as consumers are concerned, if it works with Alexa, it's good enough for me and they plug it in and they're totally happy. It seems like, so uh, yes, could it be smoother and could everything integrate with, you know, and I say, Alexa, I'm going to bed and the whole house closes down and the TV turns off and cat food comes out into the bowl and all that stuff. That would be great. But I don't, you know, that's going to be a while. Yeah. And, I, and just to kind of put a bow on this is that, you know, again, we've all been involved with initiative, uh, over the, I've been involved in multiple initiatives over my, the course of my career, and I'm sure each of you have been monitoring that, those situations very um, in a very uh, curious way. But you know, my, you never really know whether there's infighting going on because that's what happens. You know, you've got the, the senior executive teams that they think kumbaya, they do the press conference, they do the, the press release, and everything looks great. And then when the working groups get together, which are rank and file engineers. You know, then all of a sudden, some interesting stuff uh, happens. Now, I've been assured because I've asked that question multiple times that you know this is not there really isn't anything like that. I think there is a collective view, a collective feeling at, at, at the surface level of all the big companies, the Apples, the um, the Googles, and the Amazons. So I think there's an appreciation that something has to be done. You know, if they want the the the, the, the category to go mainstream. However, you know. We're sitting here in August of 2021. I'm not sure Matter is going to, you know, have the traction it's looking for if it does another push. Right. Well, by the way, it's not. It's not 2022 now. It's late 2022. Uh, they've right. got to get some devices out in two, early 2022 to make sure that this yep. thing really has traction. So. Agreed, definitely. Let's hit that next topic if we could. Great. Now, John, I'm. I, and you're just for the record, you're not in your, you're not in a Tesla, as far as I know. I'm not, not in a Tesla. But why, why don't you, I'll let you talk to this because this is really an important topic, and uh, would love to get your two cents on it. And then I'll, I want to get uh, Stuart to react. Uh, yeah. yeah, I mean Tesla is definitely a problem in the automotive and technology 
business. You know, um, they have been sort of with a nod and a wink pushing autopilot, which is not automatic and shouldn't pilot your car anywhere as sort of a semi-autonomous system. And I say that with a nod and a wink because in the owner's manual online, and if you look up anything online, it says you're always supposed to keep your hands on the wheel and you're not supposed to use it on side streets, et cetera, et cetera. But not once in all the years that it's been available, have they ever shut it off on any user, on any of those circumstances? And they love the fact that people post videos of themselves in the backseat of the car while it's driving down the street. Unfortunately, they do not have the technology necessary to do even autopilot, let alone make it autonomous. So it's probably time that the nits of people shut them down and say, okay, autopilot must be turned off because they've killed, you know, almost a dozen people now. Um, they're running straight into emergency vehicles, vehicles that my car that I'm sitting in would automatically stop and brake for every single time. Tesla can't seem to handle some basic, you know, active safety system technology that every other automaker has. Um, and, uh, and, uh, you know, as these stories creep out, it makes people afraid of all the other semi-autonomous and on their way to being autonomous vehicles. So uh, recently I was driving the Chevy Bolt um, EUV with Super Cruise in it, and it's a much more advanced system, um, a much safer system. And it's a true hands-off system. You can get on the highway and it's designed to let the car drive without your hands or feet on the wheel. The only system of its type available now. And some of the other drivers, they were too afraid. <laughs> they just they couldn't bring themselves to do it, right? They, they, and whereas I had it going for, you know, an hour and 20 minutes on the highway. Um, so I think this really could hurt, you know, if they don't do something about Tesla, that could hurt everybody else. Stuart? Um, I keep, this is going to sound completely off the wall. <laughs> I'm not surprised, but, Stuart. Go ahead. But the, the talk of autonomous cars, I keep flashing back to the magnificent Ambersons, the Orson Welles film. Yep. The Joseph Cotton character plays a car maker and the Amberson family and the Tim Holt character, you know, talks about how automobiles ought not to have been invented to begin with. Right. All technology, all technology is generational, especially transformative technologies. Um, it always takes a generation for something really revolutionary to come into the market for it to become mainstream. And I think a lot of the autonomous vehicle, again, you're running into the Tim Holtz of the world where they are used to being in a horse and buggy. And until that generation disappears, you have this inherent trust factor in the same way that for instance, um, our parents couldn't deal with a VCR. They couldn't figure out how the damn thing worked. And, you know, in all generations, it's always the kids who had to come in and help their parents figure out what the new technology is. And mm -hmm. autonomous vehicles is such a radical shift in the same way that the car was a radical shift to replace the horse and buggy, that it's going to take some time for the younger generations who are used to more, I don't want to say autonomous, but more artificial intelligence, uh, a larger trust in in non-human systems, 
um, the acceptance of, of faster speed technologies and communications, all of those things factor into the acceptance of a technology this radical. So we're talking about this in 2021. In 2031, we may be up to sleeper with Woody Allen riding around in that egg-shaped, you know, car all by himself. Uh, it, 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 it's not just the technology. If it was just technology, we would solve the problems. Will get solved because if you look at tech history, tech problems get solved. The problem is yeah, the but this is, yeah. The, I think with Tesla though. Is a, the trouble is incompetency, right? You have an incompetent uh, group in charge of this, and that's that's the real problem. And everybody one, else doing it well is it's one. Upset. It's one company. It's one company. right. But, but unfortunately, they're the the they have this mind share. You know, they're sucking all the oxygen out of the room. So people, they always ask, "Well, is it in a Tesla?" You know, well, what about a Tesla? It doesn't matter what you're talking about. You're talking about tires, and they go, "What about Tesla?" <laughs> it's ridiculous. Well, so I, I think it. It could have a delaying factor on this technology when it's completely different from anybody. You know, everybody else's is completely different from what they're doing. Everybody is different. No one is doing what Tesla's doing. And we, we got to hit the next topic. But, you know, Stuart made yeah. a very interesting point is that it really is a sea change. I mean, it's a dramatic change. To, if, if, oh, yeah. Right. And I think that there's an entire population, the existing population have difficult a difficult time wrapping their heads around it. I have to tell you that I have been um, in a Tesla test drive with with people, and and by the way, that I, I and I I think they call it level one automation, which is basically you got to be in the highway. It allows you know you it, it, it'll get you off the to the exit, um, but you can't. It doesn't you know drive the car completely. It's kind of a, a couple of baby steps in that direction. It terrified me. This was two years ago. The first time. I'm on a major highway. I'm on I-280 in Silicon Valley, which is you know five lanes on each side right. during rush hour. And this guy enabled it, and I was you know oh my god, this guy the man does not have his hands on the wheel, you know. And and I and I think the interesting thing point that Stuart made is that there are baby steps you can get there from a technology standpoint that doesn't allow, doesn't require you to turn off complete control to the automated system on the car. For example, there's they have been playing cars today. You know, car, cars that if you're about to hit another car, self-braking kicks in. There are now features on cars that if you veer into another lane and there's another car there, it will self-correct and and and, and, and purposely drive away from a potential accident. To me, that's more accepting with most people. But this, you know, what John is saying is a scary thing that is, uh, that uh, you know Tesla right now is sucking out all the oxygen in the air because they're so well known in the category that there's just a general feeling that they're just not, um, for what lack of just a, from a technology standpoint, just don't have the right tools to get there. So right. anyway. It only takes one guy to ruin it for all the rest of us, right? Well, <laughs> again, from a technological history point of view, in almost every major technological shift, there was always some big pioneer at the beginning that, screwed up i mean but the computer apple was this and then and then collapsed and was it going to take the and, and i go all the way back into the, the car industry to the stanley steamer you know i yeah, mean I the edsel i mean there's example very highly publicized failures in almost every new technology but it has not slowed the inexorable adoption uh, of that technology yeah, only, I think it's only, only you can invoke stanley steamer 
and a discussion about uh, self-autonomous driving. On, <laughs> I mean, that's just, that's just why we love you. All right, let's let's hit the uh, next topic. That's our final topic, or is this their final topic? Oh, uh, we got one more after this. Oh, okay. Well, the last topic is going to be fun. Uh, very okay. very quickly, um, story you uh, you teed this up earlier. You you know, it sounds like you had a personally bad experience, but you know, <laughs> how did I know that? How did I know that? Well, it's actually it's actually two experiences. The first one is that I got hacked in the middle of 2020 and I'm still feeling the ramifications of it. And I'm a guy who is a belt suspenders kind of guy. And I still and it still hit me. But uh, John Oliver on this past Sunday night um, taught and had his main segment was on ransomware. And I got a call yesterday from a guy I play poker with a buddy of mine. Um, who said that the 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 segment scared the bejesus out of him? He did not use the word bejesus, by the way. Um, and I have I have written about um, from a consumer point of view, antivirus software and and keeping yourself safe online for a while now. And so I went through him the fact that you want to look at antivirus software and a VPN and um, changing all your passwords and getting a password manager and wrapping yourself in cellophane and, and throwing yourself into a closet and never coming out again. Um, it, and it occurred to me as I was explaining all of this to him and him becoming either more confused or more scared um, and all the work that he now had to do to protect himself that not once have I ever heard from my own cable provider, Spectrum, about guarding the connection that they provide me. Nor have I heard, and I have tested a half a dozen different wireless mesh systems, I haven't heard from the Netgears or the ear of uh, the um, uh, the other ones, Eros of the world, um, about, again, how do I guard myself against these things? The places, it's sort of like when you buy a car. It comes with a manual. It tells you how to drive the car and what to do and what not to do. Why aren't we getting these instructions from the people selling us these services? Right. Why aren't we getting, why isn't there other than Norton LifeLock insurance policies against this sort of thing happening? Um, we talked about laws last week and what the federal government can do to try to halt some of this stuff. But the antivirus people, they're fighting a losing battle. And the fact that we're left on our own to try to figure this out. And we're, I'm talking not, on, not only the smart people, the people who theoretically know what the hell they're talking about, but just people like the guy I play poker with who had no idea that he shouldn't use the same password for multiple sites. How is this not doesn't come as a manual when you get your connection or an ongoing service from the Spectrums, Comcast, and the other ISPs in the world? Well, I, I, I sympathize with that completely. I can't think of a single situation, and I've been a Comcast customer. I should, I should, I should have mentioned their name, but it's too late. Comcast. Uh, and I have <laughs> never gotten a proactive email or alert. In 15 years, that right. there was some type of threat. Now, having said that, there are some really good solutions out there. For example, for with that, the phrase that you're kind of uh, you're kind of searching for because it's now a thing is called managed Wi-Fi, which is not just great mesh networking technology, which is terrific for great coverage in your home, especially if you get a lot of nooks and crannies. But when you when you allow a third party like a plume 
Minim is another good solution out there. They actually do a pretty good job, you know, in terms of, uh, of uh, threat alerts. I mean, nothing is foolproof, but uh, I think th to me, I, when I, I recommend to someone, uh, to families all the time, you know, that what you want to do is you, if you try to think that the ISP is really going to go out of their way, and not that they don't want to do it, but I just, for whatever business reason, they just feel as if um, that um, maybe they feel that they can't be as effective. Maybe there's a liability issue, frankly, for them to even pretend to be effective. But the plumes of the world, the minims of the world, uh, Norton used to have a great uh, product called Core, which was their own router before they kind of got out of the uh, the security hardware business. But uh, I agree with you, Stuart. This is a big issue. And I, I'm shocked by the number of friends and relatives that I, that I have that when they tell me what, they don't normally tell me what their passwords are, but if I'm with them and they're typing in a password, your password is really password or your password is the name of your dog. I mean, these password managers that are out, that are out there are really good. There's some yes. very, very good ones. Yes. They're very inexpensive. They're like $5 a month or $50 a year for a lifetime subscription, whatever the deal is. And they just save you so much time, you know, and not to get into a discussion of which one is better because there's a number of good ones. And a lot of the antivirus packages, in fact, most of them include a password manager. You can right. one-stop shop for an antivirus program that includes password manager, VPN, and lots of other kind of safety features. But the information should not be where can I find it. It should be in your face constantly from these people. Yeah. John. Yeah, I mean well, the main, I mean, the main reason they do it is because they have no exposure. They don't, you know, for Spectrums and the Comcast of the world, it doesn't really matter what happens to you if you get hacked or not, and there's no penalty to them. Um, what's interesting that difference is, suppose you take a look at the wireless side of things, right? They ignored it for a long time, and then they started having problems, and now Lookout and things like that are built into systems like wireless. You don't have Verizon Wireless. You don't realize it, but it's actually baked into it now. So they are doing something about it, but the Comcast and Spectrums of the world could care less. I mean, and they're not going to lose anything, and nobody's going to penalize them. But it, it certainly uh, it, it is such a problem that Stuart's right, that there needs to be a much more wholesale sort of addressing of the problem. You can't just continue on like this. You can't complain, well, they shut down the food processing. Of course they did, because you didn't do anything about it, right, to prevent it. So it, it is kind of frustrating, um, not kind of, it's a lot of frustrating. So, you know, maybe, maybe we'll see more legislation about that coming. I don't know. I'm not very no, optimistic. I mean, there, about there, it. there are actually two pieces to this. The two pieces are the technical side, you know, antivirus, VPN, password manager, and that sort of. But there's also the stuff that would they, these companies wouldn't have theoretically liability over is behavior. Not using right. the same password multiple times, having multiple email addresses for different things, not clicking on attachments and emails from people you don't know, checking email addresses from things that even just looks. I mean, there are a lot of behavior human behaviors that could put a stop to all of this that we could be warned about in a much more wholesale manner aside from the technical stuff yeah but it's not it's not really it's not up to us it's not up to the consumer it's not the consumer's fault even though you know, no, all know the things are aimed at them but um you know they, they shouldn't i shouldn't have to check attachments in my email that's just ridiculous that i have to do that uh but look at uh in the past couple of days T-Mobile and Accenture. Yeah, and they are, saying, 
just a little embarrassing for Accenture. Oh my goodness, right? Here I am consulting to enterprises and Kerplui. Number one, wasn't T-Mobile 100 million? I think it was a big number. 100 million. Think about that. But this is number strike number three for T-Mobile, right? This is the third time this has happened. So it's like, come on. You almost have to look at it. I want to get to our last topic. You almost have to look at it in a um, almost kind of in in an insurance type of way. In that, you know, if you live in California, I live in California. You got to get if you own a home, you got to get earthquake insurance. You may not like it. (laughs) But you're going to get a policy, you know, and and unfortunately, that does not exist at the cyber level. Right. Yeah. That may change, though, because one day there's going to be a hack that's not just going to be the kind of hack where, oh, that happened to another company that doesn't really affect me. It's bad. It's going to be a hack that affects a substantial portion of the population. I hope I don't say this, and it happens. And then people are going to get religion. It's like, you know, know, I don't know. is going to hit me. Let's hit our last topic. All right. My heart. Oh Last my God! Week, can you believe this? And the reason why I want to bring this up is that this is very close <laughs> to my heart. I worked for IBM as an intern back in the early '80s when um, IBM had something called the IBM Product Centers. I'm sure you'll remember that. That was Apple's, ver- uh, not Apple, but IBM's version of Apple stores. They had about 150 of them, and they were in very high rent areas. And the IBM PC came out right around uh, when those stores appeared and you know what's just amazing to me because uh, I was a, I think I was a junior in college I was a junior at Boston College when when, when this happened it, to me to this day it also always shocks me how IBM had no idea what they had unleashed I mean if you I think the original forecast was like a hundred thousand units over five or ten years some crazy number um, they just don't realize that when they got behind you know, creating a standard essentially, and you could always also talk about how they fumbled the business away with an entirely different podcast. But it just amazes to me, you know, just looking back in 40 years ago, they just had no idea what they had, you know, and it, and it changed my life. I mean, it's one of the reasons why I got into the tech space. So, Stuart, you're nodding your head. Any uh, nostalgic views that you have on the topic? Oh, sure. I mean, I was working at the Star Leisure and we were using a distributed system where there was this big mainframe back in the room and everybody had these essentially dumb terminals that we typed our story on. And when the when these things first coming out, obviously the IBM PC is not the first PC, obviously the Apple II um, wins that battle. Um, but this, this machine is... If IBM knew what they had, they would not have done it the way that they had the way that they did it and they would have they would be what microsoft is now if they had not hired microsoft to write the operating system by taking all these off-the-shelf products and a third-party operating system they just completely just opened the door for everybody to do an ibm clone and to essentially run them out of the hardware business because everybody else who came up behind them had a better idea of what they were doing um and ibm was a big mainframe company and they just saw this thing as a sidelight as an interesting little piece to you know to sell more hardware if they had had any vision of what the world was going to be, they definitely would not have done it the way that no, they did. I, I, you know, I think you nailed it because when I was at IBM as a, you know, entry level, you know, a salesperson, this is, when you work at IBM at the beginning, you're you always carrying a bag, so to speak. That was kind of the career trajectory. Is that they owe it in the early 80s, 
they view the IBM PC, most IBM salespeople and IBM people in general, as a threat to their much higher margin mainframe frame business. Display writer, I don't know if you remember the display writer that was a distributed mm -hmm. word processing system. And then, you know, I mean, remember, IBM was a leasing business. They were making tons of money, you know, leasing right. mainframes. And, and all of a sudden now we got these five or $6,000 class systems that are not, no one's leasing that. They're buying that outright. And then, of course, Lotus 1, 2, 3 changed the entire game. That was kind of the right. application that forced you. Um, that was yeah. the, killer, the killer app. Killer app. And, and yeah. what are your thoughts? Just reflecting yeah. on that magic, uh, magic I mean, for you. The person who really lost out there was Mitch, right? Because it was like a uh, very nice guy, but Lotus One Two Three. Yeah, it was weird because when it came out, I mean, a lot of us looked at it because of, of a certain age, and we're like, "Yeah, but does it play Pong? It doesn't play Pong. I don't, I, I don't get this, right?" Um, so it, we were kind of looked at it as like, "Ah, clunky," and he was going to want like an elaborate typewriter until Lotus One Two Three came out, and then it was like, "Oh, now I get it." Yes. And IBM's decision not to enforce their patents is just the weirdest thing. You know, I think they just thought it'll be more clients for mainframes or something. But um, yeah, and then Microsoft saying, well, they weren't even Microsoft then saying, oh, yes, we, I told them we already have one. It was like the Monty Python joke. You know, I told them we already have a Holy Grail. They didn't even have the operating They didn't system. have it yet, right. But they told well, IBM they did. Right. I mean, I'll just yeah. close my favorite story about about IBM when they were in that bulk return phase in the beginning, and they were kind of given this directive that hey, you've got a year to get a product to market, and at IBM that was you know it was five years generally to get a product from the from the chalkboard to out to production, and everything was vertically integrated. You had to use IBM hard drive fixed drives and uh, <laughs> IBM parts and you know they had to violate every rule that the IBM cookbook you know prescribed for bringing product to market and the, the, my, my, my favorite story is that when they approached Microsoft when they finally said they got an operating system of course there's a whole story behind that what's yeah. funny humorous about that is when IBM the IBM business people said hey listen we'll pay you I want to say it was like 300 not get back this is 1980 dollars Three hundred thousand dollars for just to own the operating system, and we will we'll, we'll sell it individually. And Gates and Bomber were influential, saying, "Yeah, you know, we don't want that. Pay us on a per license basis. Pay us thirty dollars." And that turned out to be one of the great business decisions. Huge deal, right? And by the way, IBM had to pay a license fee for every operating system that ended up on the phone. By the way, so anyway, this was really great. We got to do another story part about this because there's so many great IBM stories. So, John. And Stuart, listen, thank you for taking the time to join me for today's podcast. Absolutely. Listening audience, please make sure that you hit the like and subscribe buttons in YouTube and Apple Podcasts. Please visit Park Associates at www.parkassociates.com. And until next time, have a great week.